Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Barbara Boxer, former 24-year U.S. Senator from California. Thank you. (laughs) And today I am your moderator. I am so pleased to introduce today's speaker, E.J. Dion Jr., renowned Washington Post columnist, someone I know very well for a very long time, and he's the author of a new book, Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. E.J. is also a government professor at Georgetown University. He's a visiting professor at Harvard, senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and a frequent commentator on politics for National Public Radio and MSNBC. Sounds like you're busy. (laughs) E.J. says the 2020 election will be a test, a test for progressives and moderates. Will they feud or will they unite to defeat Donald Trump? E.J. postulates that if progressives and moderates are unable or unwilling to overcome their differences, they could not only enable Donald Trump to prevail again, but also squander an occasion for launching a new era of reform. Today, E.J. will discuss what he calls the politics of remedy, one that solves problems, resolves disputes, and moves forward. Please welcome E.J. Dion Jr. Thank you. E.J., as I told you, um, I read your book. I loved your book. Um, it, Why don't we stop right there? You know, <laughs> then let's have the book signing. <laughs> and um, as I also said, I know you so well. And I know you to be someone with a brilliant mind and a very calm demeanor, which is important, I think, today. And, and I've looked through all the titles of your various books, of which there are many for us all to read. Um, but you had uh, one beautiful title, I thought, Our Divided Political Heart. I mean, that's so calming and such a sweet way of putting it. But now you say Code Red. <laughs> code Red. Why? Uh, It is a code red moment. If I could just say a couple of things before. First, it's so great to be back, to be at the new Commonwealth Club. I've had the gift of speaking here before. And uh, I was told that uh, this used to be the Longshoremen's Union uh, headquarters. So somewhere I hope Harry Bridges will channel a question uh, to us. Um, I am so grateful for my daughter, Julia Dion, who's here. When she heard Senator Boxer talk about that calm demeanor, Julia might have said, huh, who are you talking about? And her boyfriend, Devin Stein. And then Tom and Sheila Mann, I have to acknowledge, Tom is not only a dear friend for many, many years, but Tom read this book over and over again, and I can't tell you how awful this book would have been if Tom had not uh, contributed. And his whole family is here, and it's so nice of them to be here. Um, and I want to say something about Senator Boxer at the great risk of making us both look a little older than you might think, especially in her case. Me, I'm not surprising. Surprising in her case. I met Senator Boxer 40 years ago in Marin County, and I wanted to write a piece on how uh, the, the theme of the piece was how younger college graduates were going to the Democratic Party, even as older ones were going to the Republican Party. And I was looking around for new successful Democrats. And I asked all over the place to friends, and they said, you really got to meet this cool county supervisor in Marin. (laughs) And so I found Barbara Boxer. So I called, and we spent a wonderful evening, uh, Senator Boxer, her husband, and I, wandering around community meetings uh, in Marin, and we talked all night. And I just found the article I wrote this morning. Uh, Just wanted to read a couple of things. uh, where, where the, the previous paragraph is about how women's rights and environmental questions uh, were pushing many well-educated voters out of the Republican Party into the Democratic Party. 
In Marin County, these issues are central to a quiet revolution in political viewpoint. Barbara Boxer, who is the first woman and the first Democrat to get elected to the County Board of Supervisors from her district, is typical of the new breed. Um, I love the idea we might have all been new breed once. Um, (laughs) Born in Brooklyn, six blocks from Ebbets Field, she said. Um, Mrs. Boxer and her husband paid a visit to Marin County and said, oh my God, this is beautiful, and decided to move. And just one more quote, because it was very prophetic about your whole career and some of the issues you engaged in. She said, saving that, I said, saving that beauty has become a cornerstone of local Democratic campaigns. When it comes to preserving the hillsides and the ridgelands and the views and the bay, political parties don't count. And the Republicans have been willing to cross over and vote for the Democrats. Most of the Democrats have run on environmental platforms, and you kept that promise all your career. So it's a real pleasure to be back with uh, an old friend. Um, I did. I wrote this book because I am very worried that progressives and moderates, as I say in the first paragraph of the book, uh, will progressives and moderates feud while the country burns. Um, I truly believe that defeating President Trump uh, and uh, putting an end to um, what I see is, is a presidency. I think many of us see this to putting an end to a presidency that is like no other in our lifetimes. Now, I argue in the book, Republicans can't get themselves off the hook by saying Trump is an aberration because there are a lot of things Republicans have done that help lead uh, to this point. Nonetheless, there are threats to the rule of law, uh, to our commitment to democracy, to um, uh, to the sort of the honesty and basic decency in government that the president represents that calls forth, I think, um, a truce in some of the fights that we have seen between, if you will, the left and the center or moderates and um, moderates and uh, progressives. But the other point I make in the book in talking about a lot of issues, economic, foreign policy, uh, the whole issue of patriotism versus nationalism, identity politics, so-called, whatever divides these factions um, is so much smaller than what divides them from uh, what they are opposing in President Trump. And I'll just close with three examples. There's this big argument about health care. Do you go for a single-payer plan or do you go for a public option? Um, but make sure that you cover everybody. The biggest fact is both sides of this fight say it's imperative that we cover every single American with decent, affordable uh, health insurance. The difference in the means is minor when you compare that to another side that is going to court to repeal Obamacare, let alone uh, not wanting to go forward. There's an argument over free college uh, that uh, Bernie Sanders has championed. Um, And that's not such a radical demand. I actually note in the book that I think in 1960, uh, to go to the University of California, it was a $300 registration fee, and that was it. So free college isn't that radical. But people might say, well, we can't pay for all that at once. Um, But President Obama proposed, for example, two years of free community college. In other words, they want to move again in the same direction. And you can see the same thing on climate change, where there is almost uniform agreement on the progressive and moderate side. We have to do something. And a Republican Party that was once willing uh, to acknowledge a human role in uh, climate change that has now walked away from all of that. So I wrote the book because we can't afford some of the fights that many of us have been accustomed to uh, for a long time. I have, I'll close with this. I have one chapter where the subtitle about progressives is a short history of circular firing squads and enduring achievements. And <laughs> one of the points I make is we shouldn't feel uh, so bad we've been here before. Maybe Harry Bridges could tell us something about that. Um, on the other hand, when we have found ways of coming together, we've accomplished extraordinary things. Well, that's why this book is so critical, because we have to keep our eye on the prize. And what the prize is, is making life better for people. And uh, the differences are more about pragmatism. In my view, this is me speaking, not from EJ is speaking. It, pragmatism. Well, this that's is your political issue. base here, so oh, they no. want to hear you speak. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, speaking yeah, of my political base. Afterward. Yeah. Spe- speaking of the political base, my husband is here. Stuart, thank you so much for, for being here today. So, um, you know, I want to pick up when you start to talk about the difference 
between today's GOP and the GOP you wrote about it so long ago when you covered me in 1980. Um, when I read your book, it was kind of, uh, this is my life, because you really do go back into all the changes that happened to the Republican Party, which when I first started, uh, I I always got Republican votes for my environmental stands, my pro-choice stands. I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush was on the board of Planned Parenthood when I got involved in Planned Parenthood. So it, needless to say, it's changed. So I And you document this like a great historian. So could you lead us through kind of the benchmark moments where you see the Republicans changing? Because you do that so beautifully in the book. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, since I am here in San Francisco... Um, when I, I've been a political junkie all my life, and I was watching the returns in 1968 on that awful, awful night that Robert Kennedy was shot in Los Angeles. Um, and there was, it got, obviously got lost in the news because the Kennedy death was a, just a horrible blow. The book actually begins with a quote from Robert Kennedy. But that same night, there was a primary here. There was a primary between Senator Tom Keekle and Max Rafferty. Yes. Uh, and uh, that the, Senator Kekel represented that old style Republicanism. Um, and he got clobbered that night. And that was one example of what was happening all over the country um, in the Republican Party from the time Goldwater was nominated in 1964 and then really confirmed when Ronald Reagan was elected. And uh, I make a I make quite a lot of Reagan's famous line that people used to laugh at that among the biggest lies in the world are I'm here from I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help you. Uh, and yeah, and we all laugh at that. And yet it is a truly radical line. You know, say that to somebody who's on Social Security, say that to someone who is on Medicare, say that to someone who started a business with an SBA um, loan, say that for somebody like me who went to college on the National Defense Education Act signed by another Republican, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and that the Republican Party, even before Trump, um, had a, more and more abandoned the idea that there is a substantial role for government in solving public problems. Uh, and it's the, the Republican Party's history from Lincoln to TR to Ike uh, includes even Robert Taft to Mr. Conservative uh, acknowledged after World War II there was a, an important role for government to play uh, in providing housing. He acknowledged there was a role to play in health care. Um, and so this radicalization has really left those on the Democratic side who want to debate how to solve problems uh, without a willing and able interlocutor. And one of the reasons why debates inside the Democratic Party are so fierce is a lot of people who would have been moderate Republicans uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago are now Democrats. I actually met with a bunch of the newly elected 2018 members uh, from suburban districts. And I looked at them and uh, I said, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of you guys would have been liberal Republicans. Uh, half of them were deeply offended at the thought that they'd be a Republican at all. And the other half acknowledged it. Um, but that's what's happened. And that's why I, I want this version of Republicanism to be defeated um, so we can have a conservative party that once again says we're conservative, we're pro-business, but we want to start engaging again in solving some of these problems. But unfortunately, um, I, and I've written, as you said, over the years with some real respect for conservatism. I, I've sort of I, 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 I know why people love Edmund Burke. Uh, I got a kick out of William F. Buckley, too, even though I disagreed with him passionately. Um, but this is. Um, this is a form of conservatism that is uh, not helping our country in any way. And I want to see it defeated so they can regroup. Um, there may be, maybe from now on we can call them Romney Republicans. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, just, you just walked right into my next question. You're so good at this. Um, you, you, you do trace the Republican Party and you... To, I thought your point about 1968 and what happened in the primary here is extremely instructive. Uh, and that goes way back. And, of course, it just got worse and worse from, from a progressive's position as far as who wound up winning uh, the Republicans' uh, primaries and who wound up serving in Senate and House. I saw it. Believe me, I was there for Newt Gingrich. I know exactly the moment 
when this became so ugly that I decided to leave the house, even though Stu and I looked at each other and said, you'll never make it for Senate, but mm-hmm. it's worth a try because you've got to get away from you know, what's happening in the house, which was so hor- horrifying to me. Um, but then in the See, book... See, this is Newt Gingrich's good deed. He drove Barbara Boxer <laughs> to the Senate. So. <laughs> Depending on your point of view, this is true. Um, you know, in your book, you, you put... You kind of put a nail right on when you saw Trumpism beginning. And it's interesting, because it's, it's not really about Trump himself. You say... The beginning of Trumpism, as you saw it, was the 2006-2007 debate on the immigration issue. Can you expand on that for us? Yes. Many of you will remember that uh, President George W. Bush proposed an immigration reform bill that a lot of Democrats actually voted for. You, I think you voted for it. I didn't because oh. there was one part of it that frightened me about uh, day workers, and I was afraid they'd be so exploited. Looking back, I wish I had voted for it. So putting that on the record, the worst thing any politician has to say, the three words, I was wrong. <laughs> so I've said it here to you. Don't tell anybody else. Uh, the, the, um, but most of the Democrats voted for it. The people yes. who killed the bill were Republicans. And the person who led the fight against immigration reform was one Jeff Sessions. Uh, and there's a famous Jeff Sessions quote where he said they wanted to delay the bill uh, so that Rush Limbaugh would have time to explain to people what was in it. Uh, and that, in fact, there were some interesting studies I was involved in back then where if you looked at the media coverage of that immigration reform bill, uh, it was covered far more by right-wing media opposed to it, by kind of nativist media, than it was by progressives. But that moment when a Republican president couldn't get his own immigration reform bill um, through Congress because of opposition from Republicans, it showed the shift in the Republican Party on immigration, the power of the immigration issue in the Republican Party. Um, And I sort of say that is where you can define the beginning of Trumpism. Now, you can go back historically and look at um, you know other uh, political campaigns where there was race baiting. You can find other roots of Trumpism. But I think specifically for changes in the Republican Party, I think that was the first moment. And the second was Sarah Palin, the choice of Sarah Palin by John McCain uh, for the vice presidency. McCain, somebody I, like a lot of, like so many people, admired, even though I had some disagreements with him. I thought that was a very, um, I thought it was bad for his campaign in the end. I thought it was bad for the country, that choice. But you could see in many of the things Sarah Palin said, echoes of what Trump would say. And then um, the party itself, the third moment, is when Trump engaged in, you know, became the leader of the birtherists, the, you know, denying President Obama had been born in this country. By the way, there was a poll in that period that showed 6% of Americans think he was ineligible to be president because he was born in Hawaii. Uh, So you can get, you can can always get an interesting answer to any polling question. the, but when Trump was a birther, the party really didn't turn on him at all. In fact, Mitt Romney, who later has showed great courage recently, uh, you know, happily accepted Trump's endorsement in 2012. And there's some great footage of Romney you know, uh, uh, sort of falling all over himself to praise Trump. So, I, so, yeah, I think the immigration vote was the key thing. And then you saw these other developments get us there. Well, we're getting some really interesting questions. Um, leading us more to uh, interesting things that are happening like right now. But before we get to those, I'm just going to continue with the book for a little bit. Um, You have some beautiful passages in your book. Um, I will read just a bit here from page 218, and this is EJ speaking. I have strong political views, but I would not want to live in a country where everyone agreed with me. I doubt you would either. I long for a very different sort of debate, one in which remedies supplant rancor as a driving force and empathy becomes a social and not simply an individual virtue. We must learn to say, quote, we, unquote, about all our fellow citizens and mean it. I love that sentiment. This is me. 
I love that sentiment. Um, so my question is, as we look at the world as it is today, and given the current state of affairs and the fact that you think Trumpism really started with the racism around immigration, um, and we all know about what's happened uh, with the marches of the white nationalists, etc., um, how deep do you think racism goes in America? And what role do you think it will play in this election and in the Trump playbook? I mean, racism uh, goes all the way back to 1619. And in fact, in human, among humankind, it probably goes back a whole lot longer than that. And that we have been, as a country, struggling um, with race from the very beginning, and race and racism uh, from the very beginning. Um, I like to ask audiences um, this question. I like to ask, what is the first word of our Constitution? We. And I like to ask that question because I like to hear Americans say we, because uh, we don't say we uh, very much anymore. Um, and if you look at our national struggle, and by the way, it's one of the reasons I love Obama's Selma speech. Uh, it's really worth going back and looking at again because... Obama has a very particular view of American history that I very much identify with. Um, and it is not a view of American perfection. Uh, it is not a view that glosses over the mistakes we have made or the bad things we did. Um, and it's not a view that says we don't have some backsliding across our history. But it is a view that says that the best thing about us is a capacity for, co uh, for collective self-correction. Uh, it's like that old Churchill line that many of you know, that America always does the right thing after first exhausting all the other possibilities. <laughs> and, the, um, and that we have struggled throughout our history to make we mean everybody, to have a more capacious sense of that word we. And we've had setbacks. It, it, the uh, uh, Skip Gates, Eric, um, um, uh, Eric Foner have written some very interesting books recently on the end of Reconstruction, where you know, Reconstruction was a period where, very briefly, our country really did embrace racial equality in a very deep way. And throughout the South, you had African Americans elected to very high office right after slavery. They were exercising their rights. And then along came the backlash and the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and um, this movement for racial equality was crushed. And uh, a lot of uh, white Americans just gave up on the idea of, of racial equality at that moment. Um, but we didn't give up. And we had the civil rights uh, struggles, which were successful. And now there is reason to worry that we are in a period where we're seeing that pushed back again, that it just as the civil rights era was called the second reconstruction, I think we are in the midst of a second reaction against that. Now, the good news is I think that uh, too much progress was made uh, over the last 50 years to have all of it roll back. I, have a, I had some wonderful conversations during 2018 with Stacey Abrams that I talk about in the book where she talks about um, uh, ways in which um, you know, she is fighting against that rollback of the Second Reconstruction and that she thinks it will ultimately be uh, successful. But <clears throat> we... It is, this is always a struggle for us as Americans. We're not alone in that struggle uh, in the world. Um, and as the famous line from the Civil Rights song goes, we always have to keep our eyes on the prize and always have to keep our eyes out when somebody wants to take that prize away. Yeah, this is... Um, I'm really glad you talked about this in your, in your book. Um, something that I loved very much that you did in the book is to talk about the election of 2018. Everybody forgets it. They only think about, you know, presidential elections and they, we call them, you know, off year elections, which has been something I, it's a bane of my existence. There is no such thing as off year when there's an election, it's on and you got to vote. And so the one in 2018, you first came to Congress in an off year election. That is a fact. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I start to get the shakes thinking about what my slogan was. Um, <laughs> and I ran, and part of my district was San Francisco. This is what I said. Uh, it was on signs all over. 
Barbara Boxer gives a damn. Ronald Reagan doesn't. That was how I got elected. Now, the thought that I would even have done that scares me. How did I ever manage to get elected with that? But we did. Um, Just can I say my favorite, yeah. I think one of my favorite billboards I ever saw, that was, it was in one of the elections in the 90s where there was a big pushback against incumbents and a desire for change. We go through that a lot in our country. And there was a 12-term incumbent trying to get reelected in this atmosphere. And his billboard said, so-and-so has been fighting for change for 12 years, period. Keep the change. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he won. <laughs> that's terrific. Well, that's much more clever than mine. Um, so anyway, in your analysis of 2018 that you give us in the book, you give us some very interesting statistics from exit polls would show 27% of the electorate identified as liberals, 37% as moderates, and 36% as conservatives. So what should we take away from all those statistics and how did an analysis of 2018 get you into what you're recommending for, for victory? Well, in 2018, I think is uh, underappreciated, particularly by Democrats themselves. Just my favorite stat is that if you look at the midterm elections of 2014 and the midterm elections of 2018, Democrats running for the House got 25 million, million more votes in 2018 than they did in 2014. Uh, that's extraordinary. Republicans, it, the country was politicized, Republicans got 10 million more votes uh, in 2018 than 2014. But that's an enormous gap. Um, what happened in 2018 is that all wings of this coalition uh, pulled together. Uh, in the book, uh, I, 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 I was doing some traveling during the campaign and encountered some really interesting people. And two of the people I write about are Ayanna Presley, an African-American uh, from Boston, member of the city council, um, uh, endorsed by AOC in her race, running against a very progressive guy, actually, called Mike Capuano, and defeating him by an enormous margin. And she was part of that new wave within Democratic primaries. And then I also write about Abigail Spanberger, one of the most interesting new members of Congress. She was a former CIA agent running a more moderate Democrat, obviously, than Ayanna Presley, running in a Tea Party district. She beat a Tea Party incumbent by, as I recall, about 7,000 votes. Um, what I argue in the book is that 2018 worked um, because Democrats understood that uh, they needed the Ayanna Presley, the energy of the Ayanna Presley progressives and the people like her, uh, and they needed moderates like Abigail Spanberger to win in districts that somebody like Ayanna Presley wouldn't win uh, in. Um, and at one point, I actually wrote a column saying that uh, after the election, I said that Ayanna Presley and Abigail Spanberger need to become best friends. And Spanberger saw it at a meeting and sent out a tweet. She grabbed Presley, and there's this wonderful picture of uh, Spanberger and Presley with big smiles on. But that is what the party needs to do, because Presley wouldn't have the power she has in a Democratic Congress without Spanberger. But Spanberger wouldn't have gotten elected if there was energy from people to her left uh, who were out there to help her win her seat. And you never on a, you, you rarely have a theory of a book confirmed on a book tour, but I was doing an event at a great bookstore in Washington called Politics and Prose, and I used that line, and a man stood up and said, I am way to the left of Abigail Spanberger, and I work my heart out for her. Uh, and that's what happened, so that 2018 was really showed what coalition building can look like. Now, yes, Donald Trump helped a great deal with that coalition building work. But guess what? He is still president. And if uh, a coalition could be built that was that broad in 2018, it ought to be possible to rebuild it again uh, in 2020. Well. Yeah, go ahead. That's a... <laughs> Thank you. Um, so since 2018 is very popular with our audience, um, I'll stick with it for a minute here. In your book, uh, you point out that Nancy Pelosi said uh, the following to the candidates, all of whom you just some of whom you've described to us from the left to the kind of the moderate right of our party. And she said, quote, 
By the way, don't you love Nancy? <laughs> She's the best, the best of the best. Um, so, so she said, quote, do whatever you have to do. Just win, baby. That's what she said to the candidates. So how much credit do you give her for the 2018 uh, victories? Uh, oh, quite a lot. You know, I, I don't think there's any question about that. That quote comes from an event that uh, she spoke at. Actually, it was up at Harvard. And as you recall, there were a number of people, including Spanberger, uh, who said that they wouldn't vote for Pelosi as speaker uh, because Pelosi was unpopular in some of the more conservative districts. And so somebody asked the question at this event, you know, what do you make of all those people who are saying, um, uh, saying this about not voting for you as speaker? And she said, do what you have to do. Just win it, baby. She just said, I don't care what you say. I, and then what I suggest is sort of in the back of her mind, I know I'm going to become speaker again. So you could say uh, whatever the heck you want uh, to win the election. But um, you know, I, I think one of the things about um, Nancy Pelosi is uh, that she um, is a congresswoman from San Francisco and the daughter of a mayor of Baltimore, where she was the person who kept the cards about all the favors that were done and needed to be done. Um, and uh, I, I once uh, asked her, uh, Tommy D'Alessandro was her dad's name, and I once asked her, you know, you're not really a San Francisco Democrat. You're a Tommy D'Alessandro Democrat. And, of course, she said, um, you know, of course, I'm a San Francisco Democrat. I mean, she's very consciously represents you. Um, but um, on the way out uh, of the office, she looked at me and said, by the way, remember, I do represent San Francisco, which I always thought was her way of saying, yeah, I'm a Tommy D'Alessandro uh, <laughs> Democrat. Um, but, you know, it, it, she is very acutely aware of, what it took for some of these members from very, very difficult districts to win their seats. And when you saw the debate on impeachment, um, I, I think she had her own reasons for not wanting to rush toward impeachment. Absolutely. But I think one of, the, one of the key reasons she had is she did not want members from very difficult districts to be caught up in an impeachment fight unless it were a principled impeachment fight that they could defend. And I think what's important, if you go back, a group of <clears throat> moderate Democrats who had worked uh, in either the military or the intelligence agencies like Spanberger actually wrote a op-ed. They had been people who were very skeptical of impeachment. And after uh, the Ukraine uh, information came out, after it was clear the president tried to pressure a foreign leader, uh, to investigate Joe Biden, they all said now is the time. And then right. she moved forward. And I thought you saw in that whole period um, how Pelosi is very conscious of what it takes not only to build, but also to hold a majority. Well, you're so insightful because, you know, Nancy was under a huge amount of pressure uh, to do this impeachment really from day one almost because the outrages were occurring immediately, immediately. The lies started you, you know, you can't get to 16,000 lies in one minute. It just was day after day after day. So, um, and I knew, having gone through impeachment with, you know, Bill Clinton, how it takes the air out of the room. So I knew she didn't want to go there, but he self-impeached, as she said. He, at, there's a point in time where, you know, he did it. And she embraced it at that point, which she had to do. And she did it well, I thought. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. What, what I want to get to is a question about the Electoral College, um, not to get us all depressed, but um, we've already gone through a couple of elections where the winner lost. And as, as we know, it's the only election that I know of in the country where the winner could lose. So when you talk about all these great votes and how many millions more votes, we all know Hillary got millions more votes. 
where the votes coming from is really key. So I think that's why your book is so important, because if it was just a question of the votes, that's one scenario, but it's where the votes are. And we have to recognize, do we not, you know, the different um, politics in different places because of the Electoral College. You know, I hope I don't embarrass Julia by telling this story. And now she's looking at me and saying, yeah, Dad, you will. <laughs> uh, but um, I'll never forget the day after the 2000 election, uh, when, of course, Al Gore won the popular vote by a half a million and Florida was going on. And don't get me started on Florida. Yeah, I uh, went but, down there for the recount. Yeah, the, the, Saw a lot of brown shirts out there. <laughs> the, um, and so I'll never forget, Julia came up to me that morning in our kitchen and said, but Dad, doesn't the candidate who gets the most votes win the election? Didn't Gore get the most votes? And I always said that is as simple and clear a reason why this, the Electoral College is a terrible idea. But it's a worse idea year by year because of the way population is being uh, redistributed. In the book that um, Tom Mann, up in the audience here, Norm Ornstein and I wrote, we talked about how, and I, I repeated this point in this book, um, uh, I think it's by 2040, um, uh, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states, uh, which means that 70% of us will have 30 senators and 30% of us will have 70 senators. And that's part of what underlies the Electoral College, because every Absolutely. state uh, gets two senators. Um, what's also made it more and more likely that we will get more and more disparities between the popular vote and the electoral vote um, is the uh, huge split now politically between large metro areas and rural areas. Now, some of that is I think Democrats have work to do to get some of those rural votes back. But some of it is because, you know, another split in our politics, young people tend to be more progressive. Older people uh, tend to now be more conservative. That wasn't always true. The New Deal generation was one the most liberal generation right to its death. Um, but with the, the young people are leaving rural areas because they are coming to places like this where there is opportunity, which means that these rural areas are just are becoming much more conservative with time. Um, and so I am in favor of the interstate compact where states pledge their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. Um, they, they need about f five more big states to get this through uh, because it's hard to see how we get a constitutional amendment through on this since it needs to be ratified by three quarters of the states. But there really is something wrong uh, with a system that if we saw it in another nation, uh, I think we'd be very critical of it and right. say, how democratic is this? Yeah, it's, and it's, so it's, uh, and, but what it does do, I mean, just, I think there was an underlying other question there. Um, whether we like it or not, and I don't like it, um, in thinking about political strategy, um, you have to be oriented toward getting a majority of the popular vote, which means, uh, like it or not, certain states really matter a great deal right now, and those states are probably above all uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona, which are probably the states that will decide this election. And so um, a candidate who cannot carry those states uh, would be a problematic candidate. Well, um, this Electoral College thing is a mess. and You have identified a way to fix it. There will never be, I would say, uh, a constitutional amendment. So this popular vote initiative, which started with John Cosa right here in California. And we don't have a lot of time to discuss the details, but it is a way uh, to get around the electoral college that is, that is quite fair. Um, so now I'm going to combine one of my uh, questions with one of the audience's questions. Uh, great minds think alike. <laughs> Good job. Um, great minds get to pick the questions too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lucky people get to pick the questions. Um, so, E.J., your strong advice is that the left needs to get together with the moderates in order to win. Now, last week, I heard Bernie Sanders here in the West Coast at a rally, and I listened uh, very intently. Um, he railed against Trump beautifully, and then he railed against what he called the Democratic establishment. And I remember exactly what he said. He said, look at this great crowd. Um, you know, Trump, you should be really nervous. And you know who else should be really nervous? The Democratic establishment. Mm 
Now, I don't know who he means by that, uh, but I would say I think he means someone like me who's been around for a while and likes to get things done, be that as it may. Uh, that's my feeling. So um, here's two questions. Is Bernie already going against your advice that you lay out in Code Red? Um, and if Bernie Sanders doesn't get nominated, will his supporters sit the election out? Um, so two things, two things on this. In the book, I actually talk a lot about why Bernie is popular and what he's done. Um, I think his greatest achievement has been to open up the political conversation that had been hemmed in for far too long by the assumptions of the Reagan era. That you know, after 1980, our whole political conversation moved to the right, and Democrats started adjusting to that. Remember the Atari Democrats and all these other groups, they started speaking the other side's talk. Um, I think that Reagan era, consensus era, is ending because you're now starting to see some Republicans speak progressive talk or at least try to do an imitation of it. Um, you know, an example would be Marco Rubio's speech criticizing corporations and raising some fundamental questions about capitalism. Now, whether he's serious about that over the long haul is another thing. Nonetheless, I think that's a sign. But I think what Bernie did that's useful and that I salute in the book um, is that by putting out sort of big initiatives uh, he said, we are not going to be told by anyone anymore uh, that only small ideas fly, that progressive ideas don't have a chance. And in the course of doing that, he's put, uh, I think he's improved the bargaining position of the whole progressive side. Uh, you don't go except in San Francisco because it's the only way to get a house. You don't just walk in and give them the asking price. You usually try to negotiate. Uh, and similarly, I think that by setting down markers, uh, Sanders has done something very useful. So that's on that plus side. I, too, have been um, concerned about uh, the talk about the Democratic establishment. First of all, because if you look at the early primaries, uh, roughly two thirds of Democrats voted for someone other than Bernie Sanders. So this isn't really about the establishment. This is about a significant or you know, whatever that is. Uh, this is about a significant number of Democrats who, for a variety of reasons, some of them about electability, some of them about their own ideology, would go in a different direction from Sanders. Some like Warren stand somewhere between those those more moderate or center left candidates uh, or the Buttigieg uh, Biden, Klobuchar supporters. So he's talking about uh, the party itself. And to win, he's going to need all of those folks to vote for him. Um, and so I would make my I would make a case to Bernie Sanders that he is counting on the idea that he can mobilize a whole lot of new young voters uh, who haven't entered the electorate. And Lord knows, I'd love to see young voters mobilize. This book is dedicated to the next generation. Uh, so I'm all for that. Um, but I think to win an election, you need an insurance policy of other kinds of voters who are ready to vote against Trump, but are not necessarily liberal, not necessarily left, but voted Democratic in those midterms uh, because Trump violated their basic sense of decency and how government ought to work. And I think that if he does win the nomination, he's going to have to be very conscious of that. And I think if he doesn't win the nomination, it will be because Democrats decide, even some who are sympathetic to Sanders, will decide that it takes another candidate to win that last tranche of votes uh, that Democrats will need to get over, um, you know, to get a plurality in those critical states. Yeah, but how about, how about the question you didn't answer? If Bernie Sanders doesn't get nominated, will his supporters sit the election out? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the evidence I've seen is at the moment about 20 percent of Bernie supporters are saying they would not vote for any other Democratic nominee. Um, and, you know, there was some defection of Bernie voters in 2016 from Hillary Clinton 
Although it's my view that some of those folks who voted for Bernie in the primary were already voting against Clinton anyway. In other words, those weren't pro-democratic socialist votes. Those were just hard anti-Clinton votes, Uh, similar to the votes Hillary got in West Virginia when uh, she beat Barack Obama. A lot of those Hillary votes were anti-Obama votes. Um, uh, So I think there will be a share of them. Uh, I think it's urgent if that happens uh, to make the case that putting aside all these other disagreements in the book, I talk about the power of negative thinking. Uh, And I argue that if you go back to Ronald Reagan and how he built his movement, it was really started on three big antis, anti-tax, anti-government, anti-communism. I think Trump, as I said earlier, defines the things that we know we have to push back against uh, as a country, that we will not progress unless we stop Trumpism, that we just cannot allow this mistreatment of children at our our border, border, this walking away from the rule of law, this politicization of the Justice Department, uh, this tearing down of basic regulations protecting our health and safety and environment. I mean, if and then there's a thing called the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of other courts there. And I think if um, those issues aren't enough to persuade those folks uh, to uh, vote for a candidate who's not ideal but is not Trump, um, then I think they are making a grave mistake that will, in the end, hurt almost everything they care about. Ditto. Um, you know, when you mention Ronald Reagan, you point out the negativity of, of really the way he felt about government and the uh, anger toward government, but it was wrapped up in a very positive, yeah. you know, smile. And I, and, and I remember, because I was in Washington during his time, remember, I said, Ronald Reagan doesn't give a, mm -hmm. and I was there, and I remember after every single State of the Union address, I always talked about it, and I said, these words were so beautiful, but his policies are so detrimental. But I could never criticize his words, because he, unlike Trump, who just is so dark, you know, Reagan was mourning in America, the city on the hill. And, you know, these beautiful quotes. So there is something there. I, I think and this is just... And on immigration yeah, in particular, uh, yes. the, the difference between Trump and, um, uh, and, um, and, and Reagan on immigration is just staggering. I mean, Reagan said, yes, there will be walls, but the walls will all have doors in them. So it's a very different kind of very wall. So. Than, uh, and, and if you haven't done it, Google the Morning in America ad on uh, and just take a look at it. It is one of the most brilliant um, make you feel good about America ads you'll ever see. Yeah. <clears throat> when um, Reagan was president, we did the amnesty. We did amnesty. Yeah. Um, so um, this is so interesting. Are you interested in this? Is this good? I mean, is this to have this man here <laughs> answering all these questions? You sort of... <laughs> It's kind of a dream. And, D- and EJ said, I'm so happy you did this. I said, I've been waiting to be asked to do something like this for my whole life. <laughs> so, okay. So how crucial, EJ, uh, is the Democratic vice presidential nominee to party unity? Uh, good question. That is a good question. Um, you know, the, as Tom would be the first to remind me, academic studies show that vice presidential picks often don't make a lot of difference if you analyze all the way down. I think some picks really do make a difference. Um, I think Sarah Palin, even the political scientists agreed that Sarah Palin uh, cost uh, McCain a couple of points, which matters in the presidential election, especially a close one. Um, I also think that, that whatever the exact amount you can count about what a vice president does, uh, a vice presidential pick sends a strong signal. When Clinton picked Gore, he was reinforcing the same message. Two young, moderate guys from the South, they decided to go all in on that uh, strategy. When Obama picked Joe Biden, um, it was a different kind of thing, that Obama was signaling to some parts of the party um, that had been resistant to him, and particularly um, to white working class voters, to Catholics in states like Pennsylvania, Oh, Michigan, Ohio, and uh, Wisconsin, among others, that he was reaching out uh, to them. When Reagan picked uh, George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush, 
Um, that was a really smart thing is he was just putting the two parts of the party together or uh, that it would, his uh, more conservative part and uh, George H.W.'s moderate conservative uh, part of the party. Um, so I think that the vice presidency is it can be very important as a coalition building exercise, but it can also be important about your judgment about people. And I think if the nominee of the party is of the age that Joe Biden is or Bernie Sanders is, that pick is going to be really, really important because it will be on our minds that that person may not serve out the entirety of his first term. So I think it's a huge um, issue. Um, somebody kindly mentioned, in, somebody in the audience when I walked in kindly mentioned uh, Tom Friedman's nice column about my book uh, yesterday. Yeah, yeah let's give Tom. And I, that was... Uh, yeah, I, I, that was that was very conscious on my part, because anybody who hasn't read that column should now go out and read that uh, column. Um, but Tom had a really interesting idea. Basically, let's build a whole government before um, the election. And I've been thinking that a brokered contested convention or a brokered convention might not have to be a catastrophe. I'll probably be wrong about this. Um, it probably might well be a catastrophe, but it. it uh, it'll be a catastrophe if it looks like the last debate we watched on uh, television. Um, but if it actually led to a kind of bargaining among these wings of the party uh, where you would agree on the kind of government you would put together. I mean, in parliamentary systems, a whole government is on the ballot, the candidate for prime minister. But there are spokespeople who are you know, effectively the attorney general or the secretary of state. I think that's a really I, I, I don't think that'll happen, but I think signaling the kind of government you're going to have um, is a good idea. And lastly, for those afraid of brokered conventions, Abraham Lincoln was nominated on the third ballot. Franklin Roosevelt was nominated on the fourth ballot. We have done a whole lot worse. <laughs> yes, I am really glad to hear you say this because to me, what you say is critical. And what Friedman lays out is basically a team of rivals, you know, which is right. what Lincoln did. And uh, I guess it was Doris Kearns Goodwin, Goodwin who wrote that book. And I think there is something special. I think for us to say, oh, my God, we can't have a broker convention or, oh, my God, let's have one. My view is, first of all, let's take a deep breath. It's the election. We don't know where it's headed. If nobody gets enough votes, then we have to have several ballots. That's the rules. Since when do we change? We should not change the rules. Those are the rules. And the rules were, many of them, written by Sanders' uh, campaign after the Hillary Sanders uh, fight. So there are rules in place. So instead of predicting, you know, it'd be terrible, it'd be wonderful, I, I take the position, let's take it one step at a time. We know that we need to have a candidate that's going to be able to get support from majority of the American people who vote. That's what we know, at least that, and especially in those swing states, which is so important. Um, so you kind of mentioned in passing the debate in South Carolina. So one of our people here sent up this question. As an educator, what letter grade would you give the Democratic Party with respect to your thesis following the South Carolina debate and the state of the presidential primary? So I teach, and I am a notoriously easy grader, and, <laughs> and I'd give them at best a D. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, it's, I, I mean, primaries are primaries, and Lord knows California has seen its Donnie Brooks here, some really, really, really tough uh, fights. And everybody on that stage thinks he or she would be a better president than everybody else on that stage. Um, number two, I think there were two dynamics that made the debate even more fractious. Um, one dynamic is a realization on the part of all the non-Bernies that Bernie could be about to go on a big run and win the nomination, and that um, it was time to for them to try uh, to do something to stop him. That that was one dynamic. But the other is that every one of those non-Bernie candidates knows that they don't occupy a commanding position. 
uh, you know, Joe Biden probably does now occupy a commanding position in South Carolina. But on Super Tuesday, none of them yet occupies a commanding uh, position. So they also needed to have that fight, uh, the, the fight against Bernie. Then they needed to have the fight against each other. And then they are all nervous about all the money Michael Bloomberg uh, is uh, spending. I, I just I fully realized how much he was spending when the following happened to me. So everybody has different writing habits. When I write and I need a break or I'm trying to clear something, I, I play a game of hearts on my phone. I love hearts. And if you forget to put your phone in airplane mode, you get all kinds of advertising uh, on your hearts game. And one day I see a Bloomberg ad and I say, my God, Bloomberg's buying my hearts game. Can you, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, so it's amazing what he's buying out there. And so I think they, you know, they and in particular Elizabeth Warren, but others felt they needed to push back against him. So it was a recipe. I think that the, you know, to be a little bit forgiving, maybe raise him to a D plus, um, you know, there were dynamics at work that produced that outcome. Nonetheless, um, you know, it's really bad when the whole first hour of your debate could be run as an ad by the Republican National Committee. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Um, <laughs> so here's a question from someone out there. This is a very important question that I get, and I'm going to give you see how you answer it. Um, should I? Vote? And I want to know your, how you answer it. We'll see. It, may, it right. might be better. <laughs> but I'm asking you first. <laughs> should I vote for a presidential candidate with my heart? In parentheses, who I want? Close parentheses. Or should I try to vote for someone who can beat Trump? And in your opinion, who can beat Trump? <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. Let's get down to the heart of it, right? <laughs> the, um, uh, the, the, what is it? The uh, heart has reasons that the head doesn't understand something. It's a much more poetic quote. Somebody Google that uh, for me. <laughs> um, I think, well, personally, I think if there was ever an election when you have to vote for your with your head to support everything else that's in your heart other than the presidential candidate, this is it. If, in other words, for all of the values that uh, so many of us care about, winning this election uh, is more important, or at least it is to me, than the identity of the candidate, in the sense that I find all of these candidates are, for me, in the broad range of my own acceptance. And that's why so many people out there, I mean, I, I, this is one of the first elections maybe in which I am actually a typical primary voter, uh, because when I was out in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, uh, during the primaries, uh, I identified utterly with all these voters who couldn't decide who to vote for. And they couldn't decide who to vote for because it is very hard to figure out which among these candidates would be the best uh, to beat uh, Trump. Um, and you can make a case uh, for, I think you can, pretty, you can make a case for um, each of them. Um, you know, I think, you know, to, just to pick the obvious example, um, I think Biden has a particular strength because he can appeal uh, simultaneously to some of the white working class voters. He can win back some of those voters who went to Trump, but he also has trust in the African-American community, mm -hmm. particularly older African-Americans. That's his great strength. Um, but the Biden, the candidate uh, over the last year has not looked as strong as people had hoped for. You know, you have to go with the Biden you have, not the Biden you might have wished you had. Uh, and I think he's... <laughs> Uh, you know, and I say that as somebody really li has always liked Joe Biden. I covered him uh, back when he was the new generation candidate. And I wrote a recent column noting that some of Pete Buttigieg's themes actually, um, it, it, not that he plagiarized them, God forbid, but that, um, you know, that some of Pete's arguments paralleled some of the arguments Joe Biden made back in 1987. Um, the um, uh, but, you know, so but Biden has that's a, that's a kind of rational case for Biden that he can pull together those pieces of the electorate, you know, to pick another candidate uh, that I can make a case like that for. I think Warren is best positioned to pull the party itself together because Bar Warren does stand uh, somewhere between Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar uh, and uh, Bernie. 
Um, you know, Pete makes a heck of a case. Pete is somebody I met back when he was 30 years old. He's a really impressive, uh, incredibly impressive person. And you can see that uh, on the stage. Um, what I've noticed, and again, I say this is somebody who likes him, too, um, is that with a lot of audiences, um, the experience thing really comes up from people who wish him well. Uh, and I wonder, is that, um, you know, does that become a block on him and his difficulty in getting any support from African-Americans? So um, I haven't I, I, if I, as a voter, I haven't answered that question for myself yet. I mean, that's very convenient for me since I'm plugging this unity book. But it <laughs> has it has um, as um, uh, who was it? Uh, it was Henry Kissinger who once said it has the additional virtue of being true. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fascinating. Well, I, my own answer to the question, because it kind of was directed at both of us, is um, I think South Carolina is really critical. Yeah. Because yeah. if there is a decisive winner there, and it happens to be Joe, uh, if it is, I think this changes the equation. No, I think because, that's I agree you know, with that. You know, I think it, and so the voters there are going to lead us. It's interesting because, um, you know, basically you have the uh, the um, I want to say the most left candidate uh, and the rest are moving in the other direction toward the center. And so because so many are in that center lane and Elizabeth trying to put herself between the two and that's a question for people to decide where she lands on that. Um, you know, most of the Democrats seem to prefer someone in what I call the pragmatic lane. I call it the pragmatic lane. So uh, I think you should watch what happens, whoever asked the question, and anyone else who's undecided, and then um, see where you go from there. Because it depends on what lane you're in, to be honest. You know what lane you're in. So you have to figure that out. It's a very important decision. Uh, could um, I say quickly, sure. I think Please. it's one of the big of problems with the way uh, normally people expect candidates to start dropping out after Iowa and New Hampshire. Nobody dropped out this time, partly because of the messed up way Iowa counted. Andrew Yang dropped out. Uh, Andrew Yang dropped out. Mike Bennett dropped out. Yes. Um, but you usually expect more True. fall off and have the race come down earlier um, the really crazy thing about this year is that California and all these other states on Super Tuesday vote three days after South Carolina. And with all these candidates in, you know, I, I wrote in a column recently that all the middle ground candidates are be, Sanders is beating all the middle ground candidates because all the middle ground candidates are beating each other. Um, and that when you see this fragmented vote and with the Democratic Party rules, where if you don't get 15%, you don't get any delegates. So if you get 14.6, you get zero. Um, and with all of these moderates fragmenting all that vote, you could have a whole bunch of them getting 14% and no delegates. And that's why I agree with you that I think after South Carolina, there may be some kind of consolidation. But it's really terrible because the voter has to be attacked. You know, again, the voter has to hire a, a bunch of political scientists as consultants <laughs> to figure out what is the most useful vote I can cast. And while I'm all for pol in income for political scientists, uh, that's a really iffy proposition. So I don't envy you guys having to vote next Tuesday. Yeah, it's all of us. We're all in the same boat, uh, that's for sure. Um, so we're getting down. So I have a quick question. You have to answer it fast. Um, yes. I was remembering, somebody out there says, I was remembering one of your early books, why do Americans hate politics? Um, it seems more on point than ever. How do you see it? Yeah, I always say that uh, interest in that book is a reverse indicator for how we're doing as a country. Um, and unfortunately, that book has kind of stayed around because a lot of people hate politics. The biggest, I'll, I'll, you know, the, the core argument of that book is that um, um, Americans are alienated with, from politics because uh, we were casting political issues as a series of false choices, like um, you couldn't support a growing, you either supported a growing economy or you supported the environment. You couldn't do both. You either supported the family or you were a feminist. You couldn't possibly be both and so on. And that a politics like that 
is very unattractive. I also, you'll forgive me for this paragraph, but I also talked about our politics as being an upper middle class kind of politics. And I said it was as if it was Marin versus the old Orange County, um, that politics was dominated by those kind of uh, issues. Um, The difference between this book and why Americans hate politics and uh, Nicole Hemmer, a historian who reviewed it actually for the New York Times, uh, sort of made a point of this. Um, that book is uh, has a lot more affection for conservatives in it than this book uh, does. Um, and it wasn't, I wasn't, my politics were not that different. I was still a progressive. But it was written with a, a respect for the conservative tradition that I continue to feel at some level. Um, but I don't see, um, you know, conservatism as playing a constructive role in the way I thought it might be able to in that mm. other book. So that is the biggest difference. If you read these books back to back, there's some of the history very much overlaps and some of the, my takes on the history overlap. But the radicalization of the Republican Party since 1991, when I wrote that book, has really taken me aback. And the court decisions like Citizens United or knocking down the voting rights, undercutting the Voting Rights Act, these are radical acts that went beyond what I hope conservatives would be. Yeah, and I was there for so many of these things. And it broke my heart to see it because people who want to get things done have to be able to reach out and find that sweet spot. And when the parties are so far apart, it's almost impossible to do. Well, we've reached that time. Our thanks to E.J. Dion. May I say one yes. last thing? Yes, say one last thing. Just yes. one last yes. thing. Um, the, um, yeah, doesn't the guy know when to shut up? Um, we always no, want to hear your one last thing. Uh, no, the, I, I wanted to say this to pretty much everybody I talked to this year. One of my favorite lines ever was from a political commentator many of you know, Mark Shields. And Mark Shields once said uh, that in politics, as in religion, uh, people can either be searching for uh, converts or hunting heretics. Uh, And I think that this is a moment for convert seekers, uh, that particularly people on the side of politics that knows the country has to change, that knows the country has to stop what they're doing now in Washington and move in a new direction, they should not spend their time in the next, uh, uh, in, in, for the next year hunting heretics. Uh, they should spend their time working together to seek converts because that's the only way we're going to change the country. And so while I would love you to buy my book, the thing I really want you to do is leave this room and become passionate, persuasive convert seekers. Thank you all so very much. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you. Well, our our deepest thanks to you, E.J. Dion Jr., (laughs) Washington Post columnist, author of the new book, Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. We also want to remind everyone here that copies of EJ's book are for sale, and he will be pleased to sign books outside this room following the program. I'm Barbara Boxer, and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. Thank you.